just think about if those sort of small practices can be replicated into many places, then it could add up into a huge impact. We are here today for 100 Climate Conversations, a project that I think is absolutely crucial right now. Today is number 29 of 100 Conversations happening here at the museum, this beautiful, gorgeous building that we're so lucky to be in. Before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We respect their elders, past, present and future and recognise their continuous connection to country. I'd also like to extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples joining us here or listening in today on the podcast. My name is Pat Abud. I'm a journalist, documentary maker and TV presenter. I'm very excited about today's session. Shui Mei Bai is a human ecologist and distinguished professor of urban environment and human ecology at the Australian National University Fenner School of Environment and Society. She's a commissioner with the Earth Commission and a lead author sixth assessment report for the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We are so thrilled to have her join us today. Please join me in welcoming Shui Mei Bai. How does that introduction of you sound? Like, it's, it's really, I suppose it's complex, as I said, because you do so much. But describing you as an ecologist, it, does that feel like it fits for you? Yeah, I mean, I have difficulties describing what, who I am and what I do because I have so much sort of complex background. I started off as structural geologist for my undergraduate at uh, Peking University. And in a class of 30, you know, people, we, were, we only had three girls and, you know, things like that. But um, that was also the time when this remote sensing, which is using the satellite to, you know, to understand the, the Earth environment a bit better. Remote sensing is with the satellite um, going up in the sky. We use those images, the, the photographs sort of from the satellite to understand what's going on on the surface of our Earth. So that's the new kind of technology that, you know, in, in the 80s and towards the, the early 90s, it became quite um, popular. So as that came along, I started to be really interested in that. So I went to University of Tokyo to, to do my um, postgraduate degree using the remote sensing and geographical information system, which is, again, combining some of those data with the on-the-ground data and try to understand the environment or the human nature, the relationships, things like that. So that's how I spent my five years um, at Tokyo University doing my degree. And, you know, after five years of staring at um, those images of the satellite images, and each of the pixel is by 100 kilometer by 100 kilometer size. So the whole world can be in one, you know, A4, you know, map, and then you stare at it, process wow. that all the time. So you travel through an A4 piece of paper? Yes, I mean the whole world basically. So it's like after five years of doing that, you started to really wonder what's behind this, each of these pixels, right? 100 by 100 kilometer pixel. So after I got my degree, I joined the Ecology Research Institute and really started to know the real process that are happening on the ground and things like that. And that's how I started to get interested in urban ecology, to understand urban environment, um, the ecological you know, side of it and things like that. And ever since, I'm just fascinated about this urban system idea and I stayed you know, there ever since. 
Out of curiosity, I mean, for someone that focuses so specifically on urbanization, how many of us live in cities worldwide? Um, it's more than half of the population right now, uh, urban, you know, dwellers. And I think the UN projection says by uh, 2050, two out of third people in the world will be living in some sort of cities. And in terms of Australia specifically, how many of us here in Australia live in cities? In Australia, I think it's about 90%. I mean, Australia is a huge country in terms of land. Very but sparse. Sparse, but most of the population are really living in those major cities along the coastal line. So we are, we are really actually urban nation. And most of the developed countries, like OECD countries, I mean, it's typical above 85 or, you know, above even 90. That's, that's a typical for all, you know, developed countries. That's a really perfect segue, I suppose, because my next thought is really centred around how cities impact climate change. Mm-hmm. But how okay. do cities impact climate change? So the latest IPCC, the Intergovernmental um, Panel of Climate Change, the ARC6 AR6 report, which is the sixth round of this IPCC report, um, says over 70% of all greenhouse gas emissions can be traced back to cities, various different you know, activities in cities. And this number has been growing over the last five years alone. I think we had about 5 to 10% increase. This is worldwide? Worldwide, yeah increase of GHG emission. So we are, you know, huge emitter and we have big responsibilities and that seems to be growing. And I mean, with more people living in cities and also if you look at, um, for example, like China or other East Asian part of the world, there is a huge growing middle-class population and the consumption of these people will be one of the major, you know, drivers of the increase of GHG, uh, greenhouse gas um, emission, for example. So, yeah, cities are major contributors to these climate change issues. So that's a big picture response. Let's sort of focus day to day. What are the more sort of minuscule impacts that most of us probably wouldn't think about day to day? If you look at cities, it it is powered by mostly fossil fuel in most cities, right? We have this power plant, you know, either burning coal or burning um, oil or, or gas, and then that generates electricity and that's transferred to our household and that really powers almost everything in the city. And also if you look at transportation, I mean, Australia is a heavily, you know, automobile dependent sort of society. And where, you know, most of our cars are still internal combustion sort of engine burning gasoline. So all these things really contribute to emitting, you know, GHG from cities. And also all those things, for example, the vest, the clothes we wear or, you know, the things we buy in our household. Those things are produced probably not in our cities, but somewhere else in other parts of the world. But producing those things also emit a lot of um, greenhouse gas. The choices that we make really matters. And also the governmental structural change is important. And there's also a role for us as individuals, as individual sort of agent, right? I mean, we choose our government, um, you know, fortunately in this part of the world. And you can have a say, each one of us, you can have, you know, a bit more keen interest about what your city is doing in terms of, your, you know, transportation, in terms of are we, you know, providing our energy in terms of 100% renewable or not. And if the citizens have more interest in those things, and then they keep asking their you know, city government, say, hey, how are we doing in that front? And that will 
put enormous sort of pressure. Local councils, local councils, state government, state federal government, government. Exactly. And then that sort of action can really push the government to think a bit more progress, progressively. And yeah. I think that's really, really important. And that's probably even more important than our daily, you know, just try to save a little bit electricity. I'm not saying this is not important. That's it's very part of, important. It's part of the bigger picture. Exactly. But we should also have this kind of agency try to change, you know, the structural um, environment. Why are cities well placed for action on climate change? I mean, apart from this is biggest, you know, sort of contributor to the climate change. I mean, it's also suffers a lot from climate change impact because we know already at this point we will be having millions and millions of people suffering from, you know, drought, flood. I mean, living in Australia, we all have that sort of experience, right? And then we can make that connection saying, you know, actually this is from climate change and we should do something. And also they are impacted a bit much more than, you know, rural, for example, rural areas. And we have so much more asset concentrated in cities. So you have to, you have the stake to take actions. I mean, in many um, parts of the world, about 80% of their GDP is located in, created, generated in cities. Yeah. So, you know, if those places are going under climate change impact, you know, what are we going to do, right? So you do have very strong um, motivation as well to, to do something. But on the other hand, it's also really a very good unit of the government to take actions because the city councils, they are sort of the government level that are closest to the public and they can um, take agile sort of actions. They are less bound by some of the political debate or ideological concept and things like that. And we have been seeing this um, times and again in the world. You have this visionary uh, mayor coming in and then he got good idea about this climate change and things like that. He wants to take action. Then, you know, he can actually take action quickly. So cities are much more agile and, um, you know, if they want to do something, they can do yeah. something. So in that sense, I think cities are really um, perfect unit of government to actually take action. In a snapshot, what, what makes a great city? Because a great city essentially, hopefully means that we're contributing positively to bringing down the effects of, or curbing the effects of climate change. No, absolutely. I think great city, I mean, from a general perspective, you would like to have really vibrant, you know, city life, the city environment is, is um, able to support, you know, really healthy, sort of living, livable place. And also the city doesn't really have too much um, disparity. So everybody's having, you know, decent life and things like that. But from environmental perspective, I think there are a couple of things that really make cities a um, great city. For example, um, first of all, the inner environment should be, should be decent and good so that people don't suffer from heavy air pollution. And externally, cities don't really produce too much externality, the, the negative um, things putting out into the environment. And GHG emission is one of them. And then you don't pollute your water to the, to the downstream and things like that. And yeah, basically inside you have good environment, externally you don't make too much negative impact and you don't draw too much of those you know, resources from outside. And yeah. you are a bit more circular, knowing you can have a bit more, don't produce too much outside and you can recycle those things and then reuse those. I want to move uh, to a very specific area of your work and your research, particularly the Global South. Mm -hmm. What is the Global South? So broadly, Global South um, is really about those cities or countries that are traditionally um, less privileged. 
So mostly like developing countries, mostly. And it's, it's set global south. I mean, we are sort of in the south, but we, we are not part of the global south. We are one of the really privileged OECD countries, right? So global south is mostly about, you know, really developing nations or developing, you know, cities. And so in terms of climate change, why are the stakes so high for cities in the global south? I mean, if you look at urbanization, um, we just talked about the urbanization will be continuing into the next, you know, two decades and things like that. And we will be adding about two billion new population into our cities by 2050. But 90% of that will be happening in developing country cities. So just think about that magnitude, right? Wow, so it's, it's almost huge. like it's huge. And as we all know, the cities in the global south, they are already suffering from so many different issues, like the social issues, economic issues, environmental issues. So they have much more complex kind of um, challenges there. And then you have this increasing population coming in. And also because of the climate change, and climate change, we already know that they will be impacting the global south cities disproportionately much more. And because of the capacity, um, they also have less ability to actually cope with all, you know, of those sort of um, challenges. So do some of the sort of processes and strategies that have been developed in developed countries work in the Global South? Can they be applied and adapted? Or is it the fact that the city and the makeup of cities are so different that completely new strategies are required? I think it's, it's both. I think there are many uh, generalizable lessons can be drawn from, you know, developing country cities in the global north and then try to, you know, see what global south cities can learn from looking at the history and looking at the trajectories. That's very important. But on the other hand, you know, each city, they, they, they are of their own. And each different um, city in the global south, they have much more complex challenges. For example, if you look at Mumbai, right? about half of its population are living in informal settlement where they don't really have um, formal governance sort of structure and they often are developed on the land where it is not supposed to be developed and could be, you know, a floodplain and things like that. And they don't have formal infrastructure. So, you know, there are so many challenges um, going on there. But in those areas, they have their own local vibrant uh, local economy going on and they have their own strong communities going on. So, you know, it's very hard to transfer some sort of lessons or good practice from the global north, like in Sydney, you know, just drop it there. Because the makeup of the cities are so different. It's so different, yeah. They, each of them just have to find their own solutions. So it's localised. Very localised, contextualised and tailored sort of solutions are needed. Mm. And the thing is there is no single silver bullet sort of solutions that can be, you know, say, okay, if, as far as you do this, you'll be great. It's not like that. Because, you know, um, many of the climate change impact um, in those cities are also compounded with the fact that they already don't have proper, you know, infrastructure. They yeah. don't have, you know, proper water Clean supply. Clean water, yeah. Nothing, none of those. So they still need to develop um, to some extent and have their, you know, infrastructure in place and things like that. But on the other hand, we have, we have this, you know, GHG that, has, that is really threatening our life. So it's such a big conundrum there. On the one hand, you should develop and we should let them, you know, have decent life. But on the other hand, they also, also need to cope with this um, climate change. I mean, I think there's statistics that says by 2050, there will be 3 billion people living in informal areas. 
So I, I always That's think so that shocking. probably is the biggest challenge that yeah. is facing you know, our time. Mm. And I think, um, of course, the local uh, government, local city government, as well as national government, they have lots of things to do. But for you know, global north nations, I mean, we should do everything we could try to help, help them in terms of technology transfer, in terms of you know, financial um, aid and things like that. In terms of the Global North um, and, you know, the fact that we have all that infrastructure, we have the technology, we have the funding and resources to mm -hmm. develop solutions. I remember um, walking through a particular part of Gaza where I discovered local communities developing their own water filtration systems. You know, and I thought, wow, that's incredible. I've never seen that in practice, the way that they were doing it, yeah. the specific way they were doing it, which was their own solution. Mm -hmm. Surely there are things that we can also learn from the Global South because technology and infrastructure is one thing, but you know, sometimes small villages come up with solutions that could be potentially applied right across the world in terms of making our cities better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is one of the things that we've been really advocating because there are many, many great things, small seed of you know, hope and small seed of good practice are happening in this global south um, cities. And there's a reason for that. If you are limited by your um, you know, small budget, for example, then you have to think about how to use this more you know, innovatively. And for example, like the bus rapid transit system, I think um, you know, many cities in Australia even have it. And that is invented in Curitiba, in a uh, Brazilian city. And that's because the mayor thought, you know, I only have this tiny budget, right? Yeah. What am I going to do? I, I cannot build a subway but I need to improve my transportation. And that's how they invented this um, system. And then the system later on has, I think, um, spread into more than 200 cities Been in the world. Been replicated all over the world. Exactly. So those things, um, that's why, I mean, in developing in, in the global south cities, you know, people are innovating quite a bit. And there are many, many more smaller even innovations. For example, in Jordan, um, they realize some of the traditional clay roofs, they actually you know, protects them much better uh, from the heat than any concrete structure and things like that. And it's not only in um, Jordan, in Nigeria as well. They realize that the mud roof, flat mud roof, it's much better in withstanding the flood, for example. So those things um, are really good lessons that we can really learn from this local, you know, sort of traditional knowledge small, and small, small scale. Small scale, but with yeah. global impact. Absolutely. And, and just think about if those sort of small practices can be replicated into many places, locals and things like that, then it could add up into huge um, impact. Yeah. And we know, you know, concrete things, for example, it's third biggest um, GHG emitter. So if you think about in many of these global south cities, if you can use some of the traditional materials or, for example, like use bamboo or, um, you know, wood, to build your high-rising structure, which is actually started, then you can think about, you know, what will be the impact. And if we do this business as usual and build all the same kind of infrastructure in our global south cities and try to provide the same kind of service, then we probably will be emitting like 226 gigaton of CO2. And I, I, I'm sure you know, it number, doesn't make sense. That, that just makes seems so sense. unrealistic. It's such a huge, huge number. Huge number. I mean, let me try to put that into context. For example, if we're trying to stay within this Paris Agreement goal of staying within 1.5 degree increase of temperature, right, then we probably, depending on you know different um, scenario, but we probably have about 400 to 500 gigaton. And just providing infrastructure in the global south cities will require about half of that. 
if we are trying to provide decent life. So we must innovate, must think about alternatives to our current way of building our cities. Is it too idealistic? I mean, I think I'm probably the world's biggest idealist, but I think idealism is important to make change, right? Is it too idealistic to think that some of those small-scale initiatives could be easily adapted in bigger cities and really make a dent in the sort of fight against climate change? I think absolutely they could, but I wouldn't think, I wouldn't say it's easy because we all have, we are all, you know, creatures of different history, culture. So it wouldn't be easy, but there is um, hope. I think it is quite possible that um, a sort of, once we cross a kind of tipping point in, you know, in our choice and in our, in our behavior, then big change can happen. I mean, some of our research, recent research has showed that, you know, for example, like electric vehicle adoption in Shanghai, which has the biggest number of electric vehicles in the whole world in, in single city. Yeah, and you know, the peer effect, they were saying, we, we did a survey and people are saying, you know, if 30% of my friends having EV instead of the other car, then I do feel the pressure of choosing EV. And that's at the personal level. But at the government level, they have introduced a huge you know, set of um, policies that include, for example, in Shanghai, if you want to buy a car, you have to pay about 20,000 Australian dollar equivalent just to buy the plate. Wow. The right to buy a car, to basically. To, to register Registration, your car. yeah. So it's a huge amount of money. Uh, and you have to go through lottery to get that because the government is trying to limit the, the number of cars. But if you buy EV free and you have the right to buy it. So there's impetus and they're encouraging huge. their citizens to actively engage Huge. in the fight against climate change. Yeah, and also, you know, they also have privileged access to highways. And in, in a city like Shanghai, you know, that's yeah. a huge incentive again, right? What are the different systems that we should be considering in terms of, you know, the, the building blocks that make a city sustainable? Well, we always say cities are complex systems, human-dominant complex systems that is, uh, consist of these natural ecological systems and economic systems, and then the social systems. So those are some of the subsystems within this urban system. And I think we do need to um, combine efforts in all of these subsystems together in order to achieve um, you know, more sustainable sort of cities. It needs to be systems-based approach. For example, um, in order to adapt, there are you know, so many systems approach for different things, but just for adapting to climate change, for example, we do need systems approach in terms of integrating, for example, the nature-based sort of solutions, technology-based solutions, and socially-based solutions. And none of them, um, by their own, can actually do the job. But we really need to integrate all of them together in order to you know, really adapt our cities into climate change. And what are the sort of key technological considerations that we, you know, should be more mindful of in considering, again, sustainability in our cities? I think for a city like, like Australia, um, we are already developed and we have one of the highest per capita greenhouse gas emission, um, primarily because of the transportation system, everybody driving a car and things like that. And Australian cities is really interesting because we have been the envy of the world because we always top the chart of livable cities in the world. And how do the, so some of those sort of technological solutions play into us bringing those emissions down as, for example, as Australians? Yeah, for example, um, the ACT where I live, we have achieved 100% renewable energy already. 
So that means your electricity doesn't really, um, you know, adding too, too much into the, into the greenhouse gas emission. So I think every one of us, if we can really focus on our um, city council and then put some pressure to them, saying, you know, when our electricity are going to, 100%, to be 100% renewable, for example, that's a big step towards reducing um, the, the impact of our cities. And then you can look at transportation. How can we increase the public transportation? How can we increase the electric vehicle share rather than you know, the, the traditional car? And then how do we do differently in terms of the waste management rather than just dumping them and then you know, bury them in the landfill? But probably can do a bit more recycling or you know, composting, things so like that. So you're talking very much about urban solutions there, right? And, and I hear what I'm hearing from you is that integration is what's going yes. to make the change. Mm -hmm. Can yes. you explain that in a little bit more detail? And maybe give us some very specific examples of why integration is so important, particularly in urban environments. Climate change is such a complex issue and you need to involve almost all of the department. That's, you know, the, the institutional level of integration. But in terms of options integration, for example, like air conditioning probably is a great way to reduce, uh, to counter the heat uh, stress and things like that. But, you know, air conditioning you know, alone doesn't really do the job. And then for many cities in, in developing countries, they probably cannot really afford it. So if you combine, for example, some of the nature-based solutions that can reduce the need to turn on the air conditioning, for example. And also you can also combine that with the social um, choices. In a country like in Japan, for example, even in the hottest summer, people used to have shirts and then suit, right? And with that kind of a tie, we have to turn the air conditioning to 25 even below. I, I had a colleague who liked to turn you know, the, the temperature into 20 and I'm freezing. So if you have that kind of cultural change saying, you know, let's relax a little bit, you know, maybe we can be a bit more casual so that we can keep our air conditioning to 28, for example. I think those things has to all combine together, to come together to make it happen. How much of an impact do those decisions have though? You know, is it tangible impact when you're talking about keeping it at 28 and not at 20? What sort of impacts are you talking about there? I mean, if you and I, the two of us going back doing that, it's not big. But imagine if everybody does that, then that's a huge cutback in terms of the energy requirement. And that reduces the need for um, the power plants to burn more fossil fuel to provide those sort of power. Before we let you go, I want to ask you about your work with the Earth Commission, which focuses on defining safe and just scientific targets that ensure a stable planet. Um, in a nutshell, can you really sort of, again, give us a sort of, you know, pricey on your work with the Commission and what, what's involved with that? What are you doing there? So the Earth Commission is a group of um, social and natural scientists and they're trying to look at, trying to define the boundary for the whole Earth in different domains. For example, we know already in climate change, we shouldn't really go beyond 1.5 degree. Beyond that, it's too much risk. And we, we are trying to define that, for example, land use for um, nitrogen, phosphorus use for the biodiversity ecosystem service, just to see what are some of the boundaries that humanity should be staying within so that we can ensure our world is safe and also uh, just in terms of, you know, um, ensure that everybody has a fair share and everybody has some access to natural resources, things like that. And my work um, within the Earth Commission is I'm leading a working group of international scholars, again, trying to translate this planetary level 
concept of planetary boundaries or Earth system boundaries into cities and companies. So they're trying to define, in order for us as humanity to stay within this kind of planetary um, level, Earth system boundaries, what each and every businesses and cities have to do. What is the fair share? How much you should do is you can be sort of assured that you are doing your fair share and enough in order for us humanity to stay within that sort of boundaries. So that's what we're trying to do right so, now. And, and, and what are some of the sort of solutions and strategies that are coming out of that initial research? Our working group is trying to look at how do you actually translate these, the two you know, scales, right? How do you translate the um, 1.5 de degree, for example, into a city's um, how much GHG you can actually fairly and safely emit. Do you think some of the big guns who are heavily responsible for a lot of the rise in emissions and, you know, what we're seeing happen with climate change around the world are taking responsibility? Not enough of them are taking responsibility. And um, this kind of, we call it science-based target setting, um, trying to connect the, the bigger picture boundaries into individual cities and companies, we call it science-based um, target setting. And we have evidence that actually shows science-based target setting actually works because many companies these days, they have responsibilities to disclose their environmental impact, right? And then they set some sort of target to, to um, combat them. So we are really actively trying to advocate each city and company, they should really set target, uh, science-based target setting, which is higher than uh, the normal, you know, other form kind of target setting. And only when each city and each, you know, some of the biggest companies can do that, we can, you know, be a bit rest assured a little bit to say, okay, we are indeed doing a bit better towards reaching, you know, our overall goal. I'm thinking about you sitting at your desk with your A4 bit of paper and the pixels and, you know, where that takes your mind in terms of how cities will look globally or how you would like them to look globally in terms of generally the impacts of, of climate change. I mean, even within climate change, there are different visions, many, many of them. But I think, for example, like having renewable energy, 100% renewable energy, that's a must to begin with. And then much reduced um, waste and renewable run and public transportation, all of those, those sort of things will be really important. And I think it's also important that people need to be happy and healthy, you know, in, in a city that is livable. That is really, really important, I think. And I remember in about 10, no, about 12 years ago, there was um, this magazine called Cosmos asking me what, you know, cities should be look like in 2030 at that time. So I asked, had conversation with several of my, you know, colleagues and things like that, but didn't get a really strong sort of idea. And I asked my son, who's sitting here, who was six years old at that You're time. You're looking at him in the audience right now. Yes. <laughs> Within four or five seconds, he said, you know, by that time, we should all be having these flying cars and it is all powered by solar energy. And uh, we should have technology so that even in a, on a rainy day and evening, we still be able to do that in a, you know, using the solar power. And I guess that means battery and all those sort of things. And that was really inspiring for me in a way um, because that makes me feel really optimistic about things. And I know I don't have other choice rather than being optimistic, right? I mean, we cannot afford to be pessimistic and then say, okay, oh, you know, what can we do, right? And then that always, um, you know, in a way drives me to try to find solutions, even smaller ones, and then, you know, try to make difference on my day-to-day -day research. I mean, I'm a researcher, right? That's all I can do. 
Shwewe, we've run out of time, but thank you so much for our sharing your thoughts and wisdom today. Let's give a round of applause for Shwewe Bai. Thank you so much. If you want to follow the program online to stay abreast of the speakers that are here every week, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition right here in this beautiful building, the Powerhouse Museum, or go to 100climateconversations.com.